HRN listeners. As we celebrate our 15th year, we are deepening our commitment to giving voice to the next generation of food system storytellers, and we need your help. Our internship and fellowship programs help activate new possibilities for underrepresented and underestimated young people through experiential journalism, audio engineering, and production training. Through these unique programs, HRN helps food equity stewards build essential workforce readiness skills that expand their potential and foster economic mobility. Please consider supporting these critical programs. And with a minimum donation, you can be entered to win a dinner for two at an amazing restaurant in one of eight cities and tickets to a concert at a great venue in one of those cities. We have incredible partners across the country who have donated as they also share our passion for helping to educate the next generation of food system storytellers. Check out heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. That's heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. And make sure you donate before March 31st. Thank you. This episode is brought to you by Wisconsin Cheese. We've been making cheese in Wisconsin since before we were even a state, which may be one reason why we win so many awards for it. It's what happens when a whole state dreams in cheese. Find your next favorite cheese at wisconsincheese.com. Hello, this is Gastronomica, a Heritage Radio Network podcast. I'm your host, Krishnan Duray. Join us over the next few weeks as we talk with authors from our winter and spring issues now available online. Our winter issue, which is 21.4, from which this episode is drawn, features articles on mobility, food activism, and culinary translations. We are joined this week by Professor Tulasi Srinivas. Dr. Srinivas is a professor of anthropology, religion, and transnational studies at Emerson College. She's the author of award-winning books such as Winged Faith, Rethinking Religious Pluralism and Globalization, a co-edited book with me called Curried Cultures, and more recently, The Cow in the Elevator, An Anthropology of Wonder, and numerous other edited books and papers. And so today I'll be talking to her about her article, which is titled Swiggy It, Food Delivery, Gastrogeographies, and the Shifting Meaning of the Local in Pandemic India, end quote. This, is, this article is just out in volume 21, number four of uh, Gastronomica. Uh, welcome, Tulasi. Hi, Krishnendu. So, so um, lovely to be here with you. Um, thank you for picking this article um, to speak about. And thank you to Gastronomica and the unseen reviewers who read it and thought it worthy of publication. And of course, to Heritage Radio for inviting us to talk about it. Perfect. Um, this is a beautiful piece. In fact, uh, I've been thinking about uh, what's uh, what's been going on in India, and this helped me think in ways and uh, new ways. And uh, we'll get a chance to talk about it. So your piece, I'll jump straight in. Your piece opens with a beautiful scene. Let me read it for the audience. It's September 15, 2020. Sanjay Kishan, a young tech entrepreneur and his spouse Priya, a design consultant, originally from Pune, 
were both working at home on their laptops, their phones nearby. Their young child, Siddharth, was playing in a corner of the apartment with his toys. Uh, and Sanjay suddenly sat up and said, it's seven o'clock, Siddharth. What do you want? Priya, you? Priya replied distractedly, um, and Siddharth was ready with his answer. Idli from Brahmin Cafe. Sanjay smiled. Can't do Brahmin Cafe. Too far and too late for us to get the Dunzo guy to bring it. Let's get it from somewhere around here. We'll swiggy it. End quote. Your, your piece starts with this, uh, Thulasi. So my first question is, how are you privy to this discussion between Sanjay, Priya and Siddharth? Right. So that requires me to speak a little bit about um, anthropology and anthropological fieldwork, um, which was sort of, as you know, traditionally going out into the field within courts, which literally used to be a field um, in colonial era and soon after, because people, uh, anthropologists largely studied sort of rural and marginal and out-of-the-way communities. But now it's evolved in modern anthropology to become more um, any site, really, hair salons, temples, offices, hospitals, and so on. And I come from Bangalore, which is renowned globally as an IT city. And I've done extended field work there over the past 20 years. Um, It's also my hometown. So I have plenty of friends and interlocutors there with whom I keep in touch uh, regularly, it used to be expensively by phone, but now with uh, with the latest apps and platforms, largely communication platforms, largely through WhatsApp. And when the pandemic struck in 2020, I just continued phoning people and WhatsApping them to find out what was happening because a lot of my friends and family were in the clear at that time in March, April, when it was devastating the United States. Um And I just happened to be on the phone with a family member, Priya's family member, while the scene played out in their home. And I I said, what's going on? And she showed me the scene on her iPad. And I watched and I took notes as it evolved. And I kept time because I'm neurotically obsessed with taking field notes and what's happening and what time it is. And that's when I thought, I wonder how many this scene is playing out um, in how many people's homes, how many people are ordering in during the pandemic, during the, as it was called, the lockdown in India. It turned out, actually, there was a lot of people and uh, ordering food was a booming business in Bangalore. And I just got um, fascinated by, um, by how I could do field work through a phone um, and how... Um, the problems that emerged in the field in intimate face-to-face encounters were in some ways replicated in my phone encounters and in some ways extremely distanced because of the virtual nature of, of the interface. And um, I've now become quite interested. I've continued doing field work in this virtual field through this virtual medium and uh, in Bangalore throughout the pandemic. And I've become quite interested in how it raises problems of ethics and of of interlocutors' voices when you do virtual fieldwork, as I've been doing. And, and we'll maybe get a chance to talk a little later about, in some ways, what you gained and what you kind of maybe lose in this process. Hey, one, uh, the second related question. 
is could you describe this app, uh, Swiggy, uh, and its kind of consumer interface uh, for our audience? Sure. So the Swiggy app was created by um, uh, two guys in Bangalore prior to the pandemic. It actually uh, was debuted in 2014, I believe. And um, it's basically uh, an online, what I call gastro app, by which I mean uh, uh, an app through which you can order food, either prepared food, pre-prepared food, groceries, um, etc., and Swiggy is one of many apps um, that consumers use in Bangalore. They use Uber Eats, Amazon Food as well. And the Swiggy portal is actually very intuitive and very easy to use. It begins by um, uh, locating your phone through a geospatial tag and asking you on the interface what you feel like eating. And you offer a suggestion. Say you say Italian food. And they'll show you all the Italian restaurants within a five-kilometer radius and the dishes they're famous for with beautiful pictures of the dishes and appropriate price points. And you can choose any dish and have it customized. And then the app switches to sort of a functional mode. Uh, It'll show you a walk and offer you a Chiron at the base um, with the name of your cook and his body temperature when he checked in, when he or she checked in for the shift. And that's a pandemic-specific sort of change. And after about uh, the food is cooked, say 15 to 20 minutes, it shifts into what I call a delivery mode. And the Google app of the neighborhood with the route of, of the delivery person pops up and a small red scooter icon traces the route and warns the customer when the delivery person is close by so they can get ready to to receive the delivery. And all the payment is done um, electronically. You would have uploaded a debit card. And so it's it's seamless and painless. And the Chiron shows you the delivery person's name, like Uber, and his, his phone number, and sometimes a small photo so you can recognize the person when they, or you can identify them. And I say he because delivery people are usually men. So, yeah, there's a section. I think there's a section where you talk about where uh, when someone excitedly reported to you when yes. they had their first female delivery. Uh, yes, female my nieces. Yes, yes. yes, my nieces in Bangalore uh, very excitedly on WhatsApp said, "Look, look, we found we uh, today our Google, uh, Swiggy order was delivered by a woman," and they were very excited about that. Um, but Swiggy, so Swiggy is a very efficient, it's a quick, it's an intuitive interface. And considering there are 1.2 billion cell phone users in India, it makes for a massive sort of um, uh, online portal of delivery for food for people who, who are at home and don't feel like getting out. Good. So could you, um, uh, in some ways, a lot of this, I in fact ordered something, uh, I wasn't feeling well um, yesterday ordered something and uh, one seamless very similar other than the body temperature right and and that's kind of as you say that's kind of very new and your your uh, respondents uh, kind of quite excitedly uh, react to this kind of an uh, innovation uh, could you zoom out of this a bit uh, for a bigger picture and um, talk to our audience a little bit about the shutdown uh, time period what are we talking about and its aftermath as it played out I think in the article you say there was like almost a total collapse of uh, for a few months uh, and uh, uh, about the system of delivery and then it has come roaring back um, and and we can start on say uh, in in the article you talk about March 25th 2020 
Right. So in March 2020, when the pandemic sort of first began uh, globally and was recognized globally, um, the Indian government issued a total what they call a Janata curfew uh, or a people's curfew. Uh, And it was basically a lockdown and shelter in place. And there were police out in the streets to make sure. And this was with six hours notice. There were police in the streets to make sure that people went back home and stayed at home. And that was supposed to last two weeks. And curfews have been enacted in India through uh, colonial times as well as through the modern Indian state, usually when there is large spread violence, right? But this curfew was um, purely for uh, for uh, contagion-based reasons. And though it started as a two-week curfew, it lasted well over six weeks. And so there were times of day when people were allowed out to go get groceries or do their shopping. Um, uh, and that was it. So initially, people were cooked at home. They were very wary of eating out due to concerns of the of the pandemic and due to hygienic concerns, which have always been a sort of central concern in India of consumers eating out, Um, and pollution concerns, which has always been central to India, it being a caste-based society. But as people settled into the pandemic, sort of late summer of, of 2020, the various gastro apps started sort of reaching out to consumers, and consumers also got tired of their own cooking. And so they started um they started sort of venturing to eat out. And the gastro apps were the easiest way, given they were locked at home, to get food delivered to them because food was an essential service, as it is here. And people started going back to work. And by that time, Swiggy and other food portals had instituted these kind of controls of of monitoring the body temperatures of their cooks, etc. So customers started ordering again. And restaurant ordering and eating out actually rose during the pandemic, uh, in 2021. And it's become a, I mean, it's huge, booming business in Bangalore. There are 12,000 official, official quote unquote restaurants in the city of 12 million. And Bangaloreans alone um, uh, in 2021 ordered 16% of the entire Swiggy order, which was 2.2 million orders per day. So you can see that uh, this portal is, is, uh, it's very useful and it's used by people all over India um, and was, uh, though it started, its exponential growth and its upping to scale happened during the pandemic. And that's what interested me. Fascinating. Uh, uh, stepping a little deeper into a bit of your conceptual work here. Mm, so uh, drawing on Apadurai's conception, you write, I quote, Uh, What does the production of locality look like with regard to food geographies of today? Could you elaborate a little as to what you're thinking in terms of conceptually, theoretically here? Sure. Um, But before I do, let me follow through. You asked me how the pandemic sort of unfolded. Now, when the Delta variant started in Bangalore, um, uh, that was in uh, March of 2021, it was actually very bad. And that's when the sort of pandemic really hit Bangalore. There was oxygen famine. There was uh, hospitalization. A lot of my friends and family and my interlocutors fell ill. Um, 
And the gastro apps, including Swiggy, then expanded to use many, um, in the sense that the ecology of the gastro apps expanded. And many philanthropic organizations and home cooks started um, using other sort of sustainable uh, community-based apps to serve family meals for 14 days, which was the time of recovery to families who were where the main home cook was ill with COVID. So you could order sort of a gastro-COVID package where you could get breakfast, lunch, and dinner um, hot-packed and, and a snack that arrived hot to your home so you could get a good meal despite being ill. And in that sense, Bangalore is the perfect space for this because it has genius IT engineers and genius local cooks and chefs. So you saw a blending of these two sort of resources to create this sort of gastroecology of illness. Fascinating. And so people were using it, uh, so in some ways, to deliver food to friends and family uh, who had to be isolated, I see. Exactly. Mm. Exactly. I actually spoke to um, uh, a woman who who uh, was not only a working woman, but also cooked for the family. And she had just ordered 14 days of, of home-cooked food. And I said, oh, so you, uh, who heats it up? And she said, what do you mean heat it up? It comes in a hot case and we just put it on the table and we eat. You know, it's, uh, um, that's basically it. So, uh, so it became a sort of um, support for people who were ill rather than a sort of leisure and pleasure item. So would it, was it also then extended to home cooks who are typically not, for instance, uh, done restaurant cooking? Or so yes. was this an additional network, yes. I see? Yes, it became an additional network, particularly since, um, as you know, Krishnan, the people in India eat, um, uh, that is, some traditional families eat uh, their own ethnic or caste-based food. So there were a lot of um, either uh, home cooks or or people who had uh, caterers who catered to a specific ethnic group who got onto this um, sort of uh, cast, uh, community-based gastro app and started delivering food. You can get Tiffin carriers of food, Gujarati food, or or South Indian Brahmin food, or um, Bengali food, uh, which is very different, as you know, um, delivered to your home for 14 days. Fantastic. So, in fact, uh, Tulasi, we're going to take a, a short break and we'll be back with Tulasi in just a moment. This episode is brought to you by Wisconsin Cheese. There's a reason when you think of Wisconsin, you think cheese. Cheese is a huge part of Wisconsin's history and future. In Wisconsin, the state of cheese, the tradition of cheesemaking excellence began 180 years ago, before Wisconsin was recognized as a state. Immigrants traveled to settle in this lush, green hills of Wisconsin, bringing their cheesemaking traditions with them. These storied skills combined with the freshest milk available created a cheesemaking culture that is uniquely Wisconsin. Wisconsin's 1,200 cheesemakers, many of whom are third and fourth generation, continue to pass on old-world traditions while adopting modern innovations in cheesemaking craftsmanship. Find your next favorite cheese at wisconsincheese.com. And we are back. This is Krishnandu Ray talking with Tulasi Srinivas about her article, Swiggy It, 
food delivery, gastrogeographies, and the shifting meaning of the local in pandemic India. Uh, that article just came out in uh, volume 21, number four of Gastronomica. Uh, so Tulasi, welcome back. Coming back to the uh, question I had asked you before the break, uh, uh, you said you're drawing on um, Apadurai's uh, conception. Uh, you write, what does the production of locality look like with regard to food geographies of today? Could you um, elaborate on it a bit? Sure. So um, Arjun Apadurai in his sort of influential essay, The Production of Locality, um, it was written, um, he was trying to, as I understand it, uh, think about lo- the local and localization in, in neighborhood terms as a political concept at the, at the height of globalization, the height of the globalization debate some quarter of a century ago. And he argued, and I'm paraphrasing, that the local as it's constituted in a local neighborhood and the kind of community feeling it provokes was being eroded by globalization. And in its stead, the nation state was taking its place in terms of affect. So I was thinking about this idea of the local being eroded. And I was wondering how food geographies and the notion of the local uh, played out kind of differently um, during the pandemic. Uh, how were uh, how was local food responding? And uh, with the arrival of these new platforms and applications that use these geospatial tags, etc., um, how is the local constituted not in consumer-based terms, um, but rather in um, linking consumption and production. And I became curious to sort of follow that story. And that's how this essay was born. I see. So, uh, And somewhere in the essay you write, uh, I think, uh, quoting uh, Deleuze and Guattari, uh, to interrogate the production of the local in a world that has become geographically and imaginatively deterritorialized, in their words, uh, through migration of people, ideas, goods, services, and viruses. So this is end quote. Uh, so how do you think, Tulasi, um, that relates to the strengthening? I think in your last answer, you were gesturing towards it, uh, strengthening of various nationalisms that we see almost uh, everywhere. Uh, are these kind of contradictory movements or congruent ones? This, this, the local, the national, and the global. Oh, that's a fascinating and deeply problematic question. And I'm not sure I actually know how to answer that. But let me begin with what I do know. So locality in food studies has been thought of, as you know, as an intertwining of taste and geography. And we can see that in the concept of terroir and wine or cheese making. And Heather Paxson, the brilliant anthropologist of food who studies cheese making in Vermont, and the biome of cheese, argues that terroir is conceived of where place holds taste, to quote her, place holds taste. And I think that's just a clever idea. It's suggestive that if we think of terroir, she says we reverse engineer the food system and allow different places to hold taste. And so following that argument, we re-territorialize geographies in new and distinct ways through our taste. And... uh, When I'm talking about distinction, I'm talking about Bourdieu or Lefebvre, who says place is sort of perceived, conceived, lived, right? But then here we have globalization that re-territorializes differently, according to globalization theorists. So we can get Belizean food in New York, or we can get a virus that originated in India and China and Boston. So in that 
realm, how does the local work? How does it inhere, as it were? And I think almost in response to the opening of these borders, we get the rise of nationalism. We saw a closing of borders and mines to Asia after COVID. And, and following that, a reassertion of nas- nationalist ideologies. It would seem that we want globalization as consumers, but only the parts that make our lives easier and more fun, uh, say in consumption. Uh, but the minute we feel any kind of threat, we are capable and willing to revert to ancient tribalisms of all kinds. And the largest, of course, is nationalism. And nationalism is always, um, when it is conceived of as a problem or out there, someone else, it's always nationalism. But when it's your own country, it's always patriotism. So we tend to uh, we tend to morally value these differently, even though they might result in the same kind of violence and the same kind of othering, um, regardless of how we label them. And so I do see them as not contradictory uh, and not congruent, but sort of following one another in a cyclical kind of way. I see. Beautiful. Beautifully put. So now I want to draw your attention, Tulasi, to um, what struck me about your article uh, is this kind of a lively reporting by many of your respondents. And I'm going to quote uh, Shweta here um, in your article. And she says, I quote, uh, during the pandemic, I had to send the cook-off, paid her to stay at home. So thank God for Swiggy. Here we get solid variety, even in the middle of COVID-19. It's a total foodie heaven. Rahul found a bakery from a cloud kitchen here. Super it is. It's even better than when we were in Houston. You order online, and when you pick up or get delivery of baked ragi, which is a millet loaf, uh, brown bread, French bread, croissant, and you can often uh, and just eat it. It's warm from the oven and just delish, end quote. So this, this uh, gestures towards your uh, idea about this, uh, the, the, the good parts about globalization as consumers that we want. This very cosmopolitan kind of a conversation about taste of other things, other places. So, you know, what it reminded me is uh, Ormas Kama, I think, says in uh, Salman Rushdie's novel, The Ground Beneath Her Feet, uh, he says, the East is East and the East, Y-E-A-S-T, is West, end quote. So, so it's always, so are we all done with this very kind of, this local things, local forms of bread circulating in very uh, kind of global uh, domain now? Yes and no. Um, like, for example, yes, it's true that Shweta uh, talks about all these different kinds of loaves that you can get at this, uh, at this sort of cloud kitchen bakery that her, that her spouse found. But on the other hand, there are a lot of sort of very highly localized foods in South India, I know for sure, um, that you actually can't find anymore that are dying with the elderly, uh, largely women who uh, knew how to make them. Some of them are being rescued, as it were, by caterers or by uh, sort of uh, gourmands in Bangalore and being given new life, such as the millet loaf, etc., or, or being restructured to cater to cosmopolitan clientele. But there are some, um, there's um, a rice, like a chapati, like a rice-based naan um, that used to be made in North Karnataka, just several hundred miles north of Bangalore. That is very, it used to, it's a homemade kind of thing that now is very difficult to find. People just don't have the skill to make it anymore. 
Uh, it's done by patting the dough out with your hands, and uh, and it's it's a very soft and pliable, easily crackable dough, and you just have to know how much liquid to add. People just don't know that anymore. So yes, while it's turning towards cosmopolitanism and turning towards sort of global eating, like naan, I can find frozen naans, um, or as we call them in the United States, naan breads at Trader Joe's. And I can find them in New Delhi and in Bangalore. But there are certain sort of really specific local foods that we're losing the taste for and losing the ability and technologies to create. So you'll have, in some ways, the death of some things and the greater circulation of some other things in an uneven uh, and unequal way. So um, drilling a bit deeper into the political economy of the picture you paint, um, you show that Swiggy adds about a 35% fee on the restaurant bill, uh, which is sometimes passed on to the customer. Uh, and in fact, that is exactly the same situation here with, say, Seamless or Grubhub in New York City, where, we, uh, where I am right now. Uh, in a business, I mean, in the food business, restaurant business, the typical profit margins are 3 to 4%. And that 35% is coming from somewhere. Mm, yeah. And it's coming partly from the customer. It's partly coming from the worker that you deter- that you show in the next section and partly uh, coming uh, from uh, the uh, consumer. Uh, stepping back from this uh, uh, the kind of the rich ethnographic material, uh, do you think this is economically sustainable? Like, for instance, during the pandemic, San Francisco City and New York City also passed a temporary legislation that uh, uh, topped the rate at, say, you cannot charge more than 15%. Do we need a bit of regulation? Because these are like only two, three, maybe five companies. Uh, and that's true in Delhi. That's true in New York City. Do you think we need a kind of an intervention at the level of the regulation city, nationally, or some people are doing it in Singapore, which is create a cooperative app that takes 5%, uh, but in some ways leaves the difference between 5% and 35% is huge. Uh, Have you thought a bit about this? How should we be thinking about it? I think that's a really interesting question. And I'm... um... I am always pro uh, regulation, particularly for uh, venture capitalist funded software firms because they they make so much money just by scaling up. Um, but let me say a few things about Swiggy that I find really interesting, as opposed to uh, Grubhub or Uber Eats. One is um, Grubhub and Uber Eats. Their sort of clientele is is middle class millennial. Uh, people who work too intensively, don't have time to cook, and uh, have an active uh, social media presence. So there's a particular niche that they're catering to um, and who earn well. Whereas in India, Swiggy caters to sort of a different class metric. It's usually people who are upper middle to upper middle class. Uh, It does grab the millennial generation for sure, but it also grabs people much older who um, are just tired, uh, who have in-house chefs or who have um, uh, family members who cook and are just tired of of eating at home and doing the whole round of groceries, cooking, etc. So it's slightly a different demographic as well. But I also think that... um, and I write about this in the article, 
that Swiggy is not a food delivery company. Um, we're thinking about it the wrong way. I suddenly realized midway through my article. It's actually a data grabbing uh, mechanism and food delivery happens to be the side business. So that 35% is happily um, grabbed from the consumer uh, out of the consumer's wallet. And in fact, uh, two of my interlocutors said they're very happy to pay the 35% because it's cheap uh, compared to the fuel and the coke and uh, other things. Um, so they don't see it as as difficult. Now, these are the elite of the city, so we should uh, make that distinction. But what Swiggy is actually doing is it's collecting data as Amazon does and as other companies do. And where they really make their money is in selling private data to uh, other companies. So if you want to start a restaurant in Bangalore, in a particular part of Bangalore, you can buy the consumer data for that part of Bangalore from Swiggy at an exorbitant amount. And you can drill down to knowing even to which household buys what dish. So you can cater your menu to very specifically the tastes of that locality and therefore be sort of a consumer hit and uh, and make lots of money. So this is where Swiggy is really sort of making money is not in the 35% coming from co- the consumer or between the restaurant and the consumer, but is actually making huge millions um, on 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 our private data, and unlike in the United States, there are no sort of privacy controls in um, uh, not the same t- type of 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 privacy controls in India. And so this data is up for sale. And I asked one of my interlocutors, who happens to be an IT guy, I said, he said, you know, I I think that's fascinating. And he said, I'd really like to see the data they have on me. Uh, so they have it by age, they have it by gender, they have it by locality, they have it by dish, they have it by distance, they have all these metrics, and they are the only people who have it. And so they become a monopoly of knowledge where, not of food and delivery, but a monopoly over data. And so they're a data-driven company, and in fact, they're um, IT, they're head of IT and uh, is very proud of this. So I think that um, the regulation is not just in terms of how much the consumer should, is it making it affordable? Because I think people in New York who um, get Grubhub might, you know, have very minimal kitchens. They might be lower middle class. They might be uh, just working with a paycheck. Whereas, um you know, we don't know the sort of range of people who are who are buying this um, this food in India. And as you point out uh, in your work, there are um, sort of a lot of informal restaurants in India that cater to the working poor, the working classes, and and the lower middle classes. Um, I'm not discounting that by any means, but I do think it's a different question of affordability in India, and it's a different question of of consumer buy-in. It's more a question of privacy, I think, and what the companies can do with this data, given that they're not regulated at all. 
I say this is fascinating, uh, uh, Tulasi. We are running out of time, so I'm going to uh, jump to one last question because I think that uh, you you do a terrific job toward the end of your article in talking what you call uh, uh, migrant lives and India's pandemic hunger games, uh, which is the precarity of gig workers. And one example that you start with, uh, which we opened with, uh, question Suresh who needs a smartphone and a two-wheeler and complex calculations of livelihood. Can you quickly paint a picture of how long um, are people like Suresh working, uh, who is this uh, delivery guy? How much money can he expect to make? And what are some of the risks and uh, that he is bearing the burden of, which is this new uh, gig worker? And maybe after that, we'll, uh, we'll kind of uh, finish with it. Oh, that's, yeah, Suresh was... Um... That was a part of the essay that I hope that people would really empathize with. And um, that's the reason why I started writing this piece. Um, It was to show the sort of exploitation of migrant workers in this food delivery business. Um, And when we started with um, Sanjay and Priya um, and their son, um, who, who was playing with the toys and they were ordering food off the Swiggy app, uh, the person who delivered to them was Suresh. And I got his number and I started asking him about his 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 world. And um, he had a terribly traumatic tale, very similar to other migrants, because when the lockdown happened, he um, he lost his job instantly. And he had been part of the IT world and had taken up gig work because uh, he had been sort of fired from his IT job. Uh, due to cut cutbacks and layoffs. And so he had taken up this gig work because he had a two-wheeler, he had a smartphone, and he needed the money. He was uh, he used to send money to his family back in the village, um, several hundred miles away from, from Bangalore. And uh, so when the gig work failed with the pandemic, when there was no food delivery initially at the beginning of the pandemic, he... Um, and there was no way to return home because the government did not, all trains stopped, all buses stopped, all transportation stopped. So there was no way of Suresh. He couldn't pay the rent on his urban home and there was no way of him getting home. So, and he lived with his uncle who also got COVID. So he had to pay for his hospitalization. And when his uncle got better, um, they hitched a ride as many migrants did. They decided to go back home to the village where they could be assured of a roof over their head and a square meal. And many migrants walked the length and breadth of India, taking months and subsisting on food handouts. Um, And Suresh was one of those migrants who decided to walk home with his very ill uncle uh, and tried to do it on his two-wheeler that ran out of gas. And he speaks, he spoke to me very movingly about the geospatial mapping of his smartphone and how he would keep opening Google Maps whenever he had a little power and a little internet connection to look at, to see how far his home actually was from where he was, sort of to get a sense of how much, how many days it would take him to walk home. And so these geospatial tags also evoked the sense of of loss and the sense of precarity um, that people like Suresh, migrants like him, to the to, to for urban work, suffered during the pandemic. Um, and to answer your questions, Suresh works um, practically uh, six days a week. He's usually working about ten to twelve hours a day, if not longer. 
now, Swiggy promises that uh, for people who work one shift, which is roughly about eight to 10 hours, that uh, they will definitely earn 2,000 rupees per shift. And some of them do, but it depends what uh, play, what locality you're assigned to, what kind of tips you get, etc. Um, and Suresh makes decent money because he is working in a sort of upper class neighborhood. Um, but the risk they bear a burden of is at any moment they can be laid off. This is, as you said, gig work. So it's shift by shift. Um, they have no sort of, um, no health insurance, certainly no sort of stability, no long time, no long term sort of association with, with Swiggy. Uh, so it's based on the day to day and the terrible precarity of migrants like Suresh um, is the sort of basis of, of a successful company like Swiggy, that it needs these, uh, they have to pay for their own gas. They're paid per mile, but they have to pay for their own gas. They have to keep their smartphone um, programmed and ready and charged. They have to pay the bills on that. They have to pay the bills on keeping their two-wheeler up to date, their helmets. They have to buy their own masks. Um, but Swiggy gives them a uniform, a t-shirt, etc. Um and did hand out masks during the pandemic. So there is some sort of superficial notion of care. But what really struck me was that these large-scale companies um, that make tremendous amounts of money feed off, like, feed off migrant precarious uh, uh, workers like Suresh. Thank you, Tulasi. Um, we have run out of time. Uh, thank you for joining us today. This is really exciting work, and listeners can read Swiggy It, Food Delivery, Gastrogeographies, and the Shifting Meaning of the Local in Pandemic India in Gastronomica, the Journal of Food Studies, Volume 21, Number 4. So for more details and further reading, visit gastronomica.org. And join Gastronomica next week as we talk to Joel Rodriguez about classical dishes and kitchen memories. Thank you.